1: It can be said that leaders are readers and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in businesses, markets, and people. We're glad everyone has joined us for this episode. We're going to talk and think about a great framework for investors, businesses, and the global economy. Kevin Coldiron is joining us to talk about his book, The Rise of Carry, that he co-authored with Tim Lee and Jamie Lee. Kevin is a lecturer at Cal Berkeley's Haas School of Business and the owner of Rockridge Capital. Prior to that, he founded and was co-CIO of Alger Cold Iron Investors. He received his MBA from London Business School and a BS in finance with a minor in economics from Penn State University. Kevin, we're excited to talk with you. We were working on a hiring for a role here at our firm at Smead Capital, and your book was mentioned in that process, and that's how we really came across it. So um, first off, thank you for joining, and and kind I'd love to open up our time by just asking, you know, where did this book emanate from? H- how did your work with Tim and Jamie all come about?
0: Yeah, uh, first of all, thanks, uh, Cole, for having me on. Um, I really appreciate it, and uh, yeah, the the book um, got I guess from my perspective, I, I ran a, a hedge fund firm for many years called Alger Cold Iron Investors. We were a quantitative equity firm. So we used basically computer models to take long and short positions. And we tried to structure portfolios that were market neutral. So, you know, generating alpha regardless of the market environment. Tim Lee ran a economics consulting firm. So he had hedge funds as clients. What was interesting is that most of his he- hedge fund clients were kind of global macro funds because he wrote about the global economy and his mm-hmm. clients were people who took bets on interest rates and currencies, things like that. We didn't do that, but I really liked Tim's framework for thinking about the world. So we just were we were clients of his and used his ideas more as kind of you know risk management. And um, he had been talking about carry and carry trades going all the way back to 2006 when the yen carry trade really got started. Um, and we can talk more about that in a second. But anyways, so roll forward for you know five or six years, I ended up selling my stake in that business in 2014. Got in contact with Tim and said, hey, you know, all the stuff you've been writing about carry over the years I think would make a great book. And he's like, well, wow, you know, interesting you say that. I'm actually starting to think about writing that with my son, Jamie, who is a volatility trader. And so the three of us ended up uh, collaborating. And I'm honestly just thankful for, for those guys of, you know, including me in their, in their project. And what was nice about that collaboration is that Tim brings a macroeconomist perspective Jamie brings kind of like the micro perspective of someone who's traded in the volatility markets and then I'm someone who's kind of sits in between. I understand the kind of I guess um, the plummy of markets having run hedge funds. I understand the institutional incentives and um, I also understand what it's like to be running a levered strategy when carry trades unwind. So that's kind of how we got together and what we bring to the party.
1: So, can you start? Let's just to kind of make sure we have, you know, the core, uh, uh, kind of the core issue that you spend a lot of your time, uh, book, you know, kind of expanding on for the framework. Can you start by just explaining a traditional currency carry trade so that our listeners understand that seed?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. It, um, carry kind of evolved or we um, got it, it had its origins in the currency market so the the classic currency carry trade is you borrow in a low interest rate currency uh, let's call it the, the dollar so you borrow u.s dollars at a low interest rate and then you convert that to a currency with higher interest rates let's call it the turkish lira so if turkish lira interest rates are 10 percent and u.s dollar interest rates are one percent you can borrow dollars at one percent convert them to turkish lira put them in a bank in turkey and you earn ten percent if the exchange rate doesn't change right um, you can basically earn that yield difference earn that spread and that spread is called the carry that's the return you earn um, on that trade, if the world stays the same, if the exchange rate stays the same, and you can convert your tur- Turkish lira back to U.S. dollars, say in a year's time, you've
1: earned um, a nine percent return. Okay, so now using you know, like you said, you come at this from an equity markets uh, perspective. What you know in your career, what do you think as the big kind of currency carry trades um, that that you witnessed? There's been different
0: currency carry trades prevalent at different points in market history. Um, The big one um, was in the kind of run up to the creation of the euro where, um, you know, prior to the creation of the euro obviously you had different interest rates um, across all the uh, currencies in Europe. So you typically had the Italian Lira with high interest rates, the UK Pound even countries (laughs) like uh, the Scandinavian countries we now think of as almost kind of safe havens but um, historically they had quite high interest rates so you had trades where you could borrow in say the Deutsche Mark, German Mark, invest in Italian Lira, invest in British Pounds or Norwegian um, corona, I believe, and um, as the movement toward the euro gathered steam, interest rates in um, in in Europe converged, and so that became a very profitable trade um, mm-hmm. as currency markets stayed stable and, and you kind of earned that spread. Uh, after the euro, the carry trade sort of moved on to... Um, two different sources. one, uh, the Australian dollar and to some extent the New Zealand dollar that's a much smaller market. Both of those are developed market currencies with uh, traditionally higher interest rates. Um, and then emerging market currencies uh, Brazilian lira, uh, sorry Brazilian real and Turkish lira, uh, South Africa, emerging markets which with much higher interest rates. So I'd say in the last 20 years, the majority of currency carry trades have been um, into emerging markets because developed market interest rates are now so close together. Sure. Um, the, the other thing, Cole, that I mentioned is that I alluded in the introduction to the yen carry trade. So if you remember, the Japanese market had a crash uh, in the late 1980s, and Japan was kind of the first country to move to ultra-low interest rates. So for a long time the funding currency the currency you would borrow to finance carry trades was the japanese yen because interest rates there were so much lower than um than in other countries and now of course um interest rates are low in basically everywhere in the developed world so you can fund just as easily in the u.s dollar as you can in uh, the japanese yen
1: yeah and i think who probably explains the best story of the fallout of that carry trade is um Ed Chancellor's book, Devil Takes the Hindmost, because he explains how a lot of that got cleaned up. So can you, early, early in the book, you explain what the characteristics of a carry trade are. What uh, what would you explain the primary characteristics are?
0: Yeah, that that's um, where we start off, and that's quite important. So there's um, four primary characteristics of carry trades. Um, First, they always involve leverage. So it always involves um, either explicitly borrowing money or um, kind of a shadow leverage, which we could talk about later on. But so carry trades always involve leverage. They are what we call liquidity providing. So they um, essentially channel money from where there's an excess to where there's a dearth. Basically taking, let's say in the case of Japan, um, an economy that had a lot of capital and channeling it to Turkey or Brazil or South Africa countries where um, there's a dearth of capital. So it's a liquidity providing trade. And that's important because it, as carry grows globally, that means um, markets seem like they're more liquid, liquidity grows. So that's the second characteristic. Third characteristic is that liquidity, uh, sorry, carry trades are what we call short volatility. They make money as long as the world stays the same. It's a trade that makes money if nothing happens. So it's a bet on stability. When the world is stable, carry trades profit. When the world becomes unstable, carry trades can lose money quickly, which brings us to the fourth um, characteristics, which is this kind of um, Escalator up elevator down return pattern long periods fairly steady but modest profits punctuated by occasional big drawdowns
1: You explained in parts of your book what transpired in 90, 1998 with long-term capital management my best way of you know framing that story and that that period was uh, I think it was Lowenstein who wrote you know uh, when genius failed That was 24 years ago. I mean, I'm 38 years old, uh, Kevin. Most millennials can read about it, but they couldn't experience it, for better or for worse. Um, You know, can you explain what transpired in that carry trade ending and and kind of some of what were the characteristics and and the liquidity and those kind of things of that of that uh, problem?
0: Yeah, so... I'm slightly older than you. Uh, I won't reveal my true age, but uh, roughly two decades older than you. Um, yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> long-term capital um, was, you know, this, you have to remember, this is a world where um, hedge funds were not part of the mainstream at all. Um, to the extent hedge funds existed, they were mainly kind of, uh, not the shadow exactly, but you didn't have much information. They were mainly vehicles for people Uh, very high net worth individuals to manage money. Long-term capital was the first kind of quasi-institutional fund um, started by um, a group of Solomon Brothers traders, John Merriweather being the first one, or being the most prominent one. And they were the gold standard of hedge funds at the time. And essentially what they did, it was just a basket of various types of carry trades. Um, They did currency carry trades like we just described. They did... um, carry trades in the fixed income markets where you would look at you know basically bonds that had very similar cash flow characteristics but one would be trading at a slightly lower price than the other Um, and so they would just go long the slightly higher yielding bond and short the slightly lower yielding bond and that difference in yield was the carry but the yield was so small that they had to apply lots of leverage 10 20 30 50 times leverage to get to a decent absolute return so the long-term capital was a basket of various types of carry trades all with the characteristics that we just described the important mm-hmm. one being short volatility so um, they made lots of profits in the years leading up to 1997 and then um, there was a crisis in East Asian currencies, so high-yielding currencies in Malaysia, Thailand, started to depreciate. So long-term capital would have been, you know, long those currencies or long, you know, carry trades in those currencies, and those carry trades started losing money. Um, eventually, it led to it kind of spilled over into Russia, where they also had um, borrowed money to invest in higher-yielding Russian bonds and so because they were applying so much leverage when you start losing money in a levered trade you need to close out those positions otherwise you can get wiped out and if people see you coming they know you have to trade they move the prices against you and you can quickly get into a vicious cycle which is exactly what happened and long-term capital in a very short period of time um, essentially went bust from a market's perspective the key thing is that The Fed got together with basically the lenders to long-term capital. And the Fed didn't directly intervene to stabilize the markets, but it basically told the lenders to long-term capital, look, you need to organize essentially a private sector bailout. You need to take over their book and unwind it slowly. Um, And then subsequently, they also, the Fed, lowered interest rates. So it, it wasn't a direct... Intervention the way we saw in 2008 or 2020, but it was the first signal to the market that when carry trades blow up and it creates a potential systemic risk, the central bank was going to do something to prevent kind of broader contagion.
1: And that's a great point. That that's a fantastic point, Kevin. And I think I want to come back to that because I think the later parts of your book really, really um, we can kind of dive into the weeds of that for better or for worse so let, let's pivot um, and where i want to pivot next is you, you explain that carry trades are like selling insurance um, when i read this i think of warren buffett um, you know when i think of selling insurance um, can you explain what you mean by carry trades are just like insurance if you think about what the
0: cash flow profile of someone who's selling insurance what does it look like well You sell, if I sell you an insurance policy call, every month you pay me a premium, right? And so I have steady premium income from you. And then once in a while, let's say I've sold you, I don't know, fire insurance. um, I get 10 years of premium income. And then in 10 years you have a fire and I have to make a big payout. So there's steady income punctuated by occasional big payouts. Now... So, and that's exactly what the profile of a of a carry trade looks like. Um, You think about, you know, going long the turkey, borrowing in yen, and going long the Turkish lira. You earn that interest rate spread month in month out. But if something happens in Turkey and there's a sudden depreciation in the currency, you can have a very big loss. So you can see how those two return profiles are very similar, hopefully, from the example. Now the difference is that in the insurance world, the regulated insurance world, right, you have to demonstrate that you've got capital to, you know, make those payouts, right? I have to show the regulator that if Cole's house burns down, I've got the money to pay him. Um, so the the existence of that kind of insurance makes us all better off, right? You you're able to buy insurance on your house therefore you don't have to keep a lot of cash in the bank in case your house burns down right you've got mm-hmm. that you so i've i've kind of created liquidity for you in that sense because i've allowed you to reduce the amount of cash you need and you know use it in other ways mm-hmm. and i've made you better off and i've made me better off because you know i'm making some money out of it so the world's kind of And we we try to emphasize this in the book, the world needs carry to some extent, and that kind of regulated, well-structured carry is good, but in the financial markets, you don't have to show that you can withstand a carry crash. Long-term capital, as it turned out, didn't have enough capital to withstand a carry crash. Um, And so when in the financial markets, carry traders go bankrupt, it can have this contagion effect because their lenders um, can lose money and it can sort of spiral.
1: Yeah, when to your point, when some, when I buy insurance on my car, you know, using, since I mentioned Buffett, using Geico as an example, Geico is effectively long me not hurting myself or damaging my car, which is a good thing, right? They're taking me as a good driver, hopefully, uh, versus trying to bet that financial markets stay sane is a little tougher to model. So let's, um, you talk about the agents of carry, and you explain a few a few groups that I'd love to kind of have you peel, peel back a little bit? Um, I think I only use three of them, but um, so you mentioned, you know, hedge funds have kind of become a player in such a way that they weren't in a prior era. As an agent of carry, if they're becoming bigger and bigger and bigger, doesn't that just beget more volatility just by the nature of the pie they touch? When you say beget more volatility... Yeah, in other words, that- they're, they're risk taking groups by nature in a way that, you know, other pools of capital might not be. Right. In other words, there's an incentive structure that causes them to seek out risk in a, in a unique way. Um, and, and obviously, like you point out, all carry trades end or all carry regimes ultimately end. You know, if they're becoming a much larger financial player from, say, 1980 to 2020, d- doesn't that financial risk seeking um, profile really increase volatility in the long run? I guess it has in the long run. I, I think it does. In the short
0: run, to the extent they're engaging in carry trades, it kind of dampens volatility. So it, okay. it, you, you get two things going on. So, if hedge funds, so what we say in the book is look, the way people get paid in hedge funds, and I understand this because I was a hedge fund manager for a long time, is you know, you get an annual incentive fee based on the based on the profits, right? Typically, twenty percent. I guess now maybe fifteen percent of the profits you earn uh, for your clients, you get to keep as an incentive fee. So, um, um, carried. If you think about the structure of a carry trade, going back to our insurance example, you get regular income um, with occasional big losses. So. If you're engaging in carry trades, you're earning regular profits. So, you know, you're regularly collecting an incentive fee because you're making profits. And then once in a while, you're going to have a big drawdown. You're going to lose a lot of money. Those big drawdowns tend to come, you know, when there's a market disruption. So you're losing money at the same time everyone else is losing money. It's Mm -hmm. easy to blame that on the market. Um, So, individual traders, individual hedge funds, um, have an incentive to, ha- to take on carry trades because they're collecting these incentive fees regularly and they don't have to give them back when they have a drawdown. Mm-hmm. Um, the flip side is it would be very difficult in a hedge fund world as a trader, as a manager, to be negative carry, to basically um, you know, be buying insurance and having to pay out money every year um, you're not going to attract investors if you lose money <laughs> nine out of every 10 years, right? That's a hard profile. So um, as hedge funds have grown, I think what's happened is they naturally gravitate toward carry trades. So as they engage in carry trades, it's kind of like they're selling volatility. And that has the effect of pushing down volatility in the short term until there's some event, some spark. And then all of a sudden you've got a lot of people who are potentially losing money. And so the drawdown gets reinforced. So you get a lot more skewness in returns, a lot bigger negative realizations now than you did prior to say 1998, because you've got a lot more people trading, um, or being being in the carry trade in all its various forms.
1: You talk about sovereign wealth funds as very natural carry uh you know participants um explain the characteristics of them that make them so unique
0: yeah you know in in the probably the the classic you know you, you brought up warren buffett right he's a carry trader right he's um selling insurance and um he's in a good position to do that because berkshire hathaway has a very strong balance sheet so he can survive these drawdowns right so um, he's in a position to ride out the drawdowns, and sovereign wealth funds um, are kind of in a similar position, right? They're basically large pools of, of reserves that have been built up, either in countries that have uh, trade surpluses like China, or commodity exports like like Russia and, and other countries that have consistent um, surpluses, and so they've had very strong balance sheets, and. Therefore, you know, they're in a position to, um, if they want, to sell volatility because they can ride out market storms and earn, um, earn the premium. Other, um, you know, if you think about some of the bigger, well-funded pension plans out there, a lot of the Canadian pension plans are very well-funded, um, and they engage in volatility selling and carry trades precisely for this reason, because they know that they can ride out a drawdown. They've got very long-term liability profiles and they're well-funded. They don't, they're not gonna be forced to um, close out positions um, during, a, dur- during a, a spike in volatility. So, you know, people with strong balance sheets are the natural providers of insurance services, of, of liquidity services to the market. Hedge funds do not have strong balance sheets, right? Their liabilities are short-term. People can take their money out every month or every quarter. Um, so they, they're not in a position to ride out carry crashes, which is why they can become a destabilizing force if they're doing carry trades in large
1: amounts. And to follow on that, you also mentioned private equity firms as an agent of carry. Um, obviously, it's very different uh, than a sovereign wealth fund or insurer, and it's in some respects more like um, a hedge fund. But explain, explain what you mean by the carry that private equity can take on.
0: Yeah, private equity, um, you know, you think about what they're doing at a very high level. Um, They're typically buying firms that have um, solid cash flows, um, so solid kind of streams of income, but for whatever reason, the market's not assigning, you know, what they think is a fair value to those cash flows. It could be that they're in an industry that's, you know, out of favor, maybe for ESG reasons or um whatever so what what uh, private equity firms will do is borrow money um and use that to take over those companies so they're they're borrowing money at a you know lower interest rate than what they think they're getting on the equity that they purchase so um that's the definition of a carry trade there um they're using borrowed money to earn a higher yield um, now they're those their positions aren't marked to market in the way a hedge fund is right so when there's volatility erupts they um aren't necessarily forced sellers unless the people who've lent the money um you know believe that they're not going to get paid back in which case like in 2008 some private equity firms got in trouble and they had to liquidate some of their holdings Um, but they're definitely a source of carry um kind of a, a longer term source um, taking borrowed money and channeling it into kind of higher yielding um, companies, higher yielding equity holdings.
1: And they need they need the liquidity, obviously, at some point. So a lot of the elements, like you said, of carry, um, you know, follow on. And there's, you know, the sawtooth pattern, which occasionally they borrow too much. And on their small equity investment, they just have to give it up every once in a while, which isn't common, I would note. But um, so let's, Kevin, let's go to the real fireworks because... Later in your book, I just I, I just couldn't have had more fun thinking about this framework. So you, you, you explain what you call a carry regime. And I think this is like, if someone says, where's the meat and potatoes? This is awesome. Uh, you start out first by asking, um, quote, is the carry regime a natural phenomena or a product of central bank policies? What, what does your work provide for an answer to that? There's some
0: level of carry. In the financial markets that's natural and good right mm-hmm. um, we talked about insurance being a you know a potential source of of good and you know banks are carry traders right um mm-hmm. just what, what do you do when you you put your money in a deposit um you get paid an interest rate that's lower than um what the bank earns on its loan portfolio right that's a that's a carry trade um so, you know, the existence of banks is also a good thing, right? Allows you, it allows, you know, credit creation in the economy. So carry it, you know, in a world of, you know, kind of a world of free capital is going to exist, should exist, and, and is good for all of us. Um, but it has attendant risks. And those, you know, like any market where those risks get distorted, you um, it's going to create follow-on problems. So to the extent that in a carry crash, people who, if you will, should have gone bankrupt are bailed out or don't lose as much money as they otherwise would have, then what's that going to do? That's going to encourage more people to do that trade, to do that transaction, which means that the next time volatility erupts, more people are going to get into trouble. Therefore, necessitating a greater intervention, which in turn encourages still more money to come into the carry trade. So we call this kind of a ratchet process where the initial level of carry um, really we think either starting in 19, probably starting in 1998 when there was an indication that, hey, when carry traders get in trouble, there's going to be some backup either in the form of lower interest rates, which we saw in 1998 um, or in in a unofficial or official bailout, and so the carry regime is a world where a kind of cycle is developed that's encouraged the growth of carry because of the actions of central banks. Which I'm not like an anti-central bank guy. I, I think mm-hmm. you know when you look at the choices that they thought they were making at the time. Um, it's always, hey, let's let's deal with the problem now, and then we can deal with systemic imp- impacts later on. But they, they they never do that. And so you just have a kind of greater and greater role for central banks in the economy um,
1: during the Kerry regime. So to focus a little bit more in on the natural phenomena idea, um, I, what I thought about in reading that, Kevin, is— Let's call spades spades. Humans love easy money. Okay, so if I can if I can borrow it too, and make eight, we call that easy money. Okay, and so what happens is you know you're at a cocktail party like Peter Lynch says, and someone starts telling you about their easy money. So for example, um, easy money was you know oh six. You're in Phoenix, Arizona. Look how easy it is to make money in housing. For example, those are carries like like you're pointing out. And that was a regime, I would argue too, um, to your point. And so, isn't it just kind of the psychological? That's would you consider that to be kind of the natural phenomena, the easy money that humans love to fall in love with at these certain junctures?
0: I, th- I think that's that's certainly part of it. Um, I th- so the if you, and, and if you think about kind of what's happened in the world the world where I started my career in the late 1980s. um, You know, China was not part of the global financial system. A lot of these emerging Mm -hmm. markets were uninvestable. Even Europe, as I I said, um, was split up into different currencies and was expensive to trade. So capital markets were not integrated nearly to the same extent they are now. Trading was a lot more expensive. So these carry trades were out there but not easily accessible, right? You, mm-hmm. you could have a few people who really had expertise who could do them. But as markets have become more integrated, capital flows freed up, technology and data became cheaper. All these things come together to make these various carry trades much more accessible. And the pools of capital out there, as we've talked about, that can quickly find them and act on them are much greater. So that kind of institutional background has made it much easier for financial market participants to engage in carry. And as you said, I think your, your example of the Phoenix property market is great. I mean, we talk about buy to let property as a carry trade and we see that everywhere. You know, I, my, my wife's a New Zealander and that you know, the property market there is heavily fueled by people borrowing to, to buy uh, rental properties um so it's i i I do think it's um like you said the easy money phenomenon has has now got to the point where when you hear a story at a cocktail party it's possible for you to actually do something uh, whereas maybe 30 years ago you you couldn't
1: after you say that (laughs) i'm literally thinking tom Petterfee needs to come on right after and start pitching you can do all this through interactive <laughs> brokers today, right. uh, you know what I mean, yeah. and, and that and no. that shows you how the technology has really brought this in. So um, let's I want to follow one more step on this because I I love this. So as you're building out this carry regime, um, you point out that numerous times in your book that when carry trades end, S and P five hundred volatility spikes. Um, on and in fact, I'll I'll put out a quote here from your book on on page eighty eight. Um, if there is a parallel between currency carry trades and stock market volatility carry trades and it is clear both from the theoretical argument and from the empirical data that there must be then it seems that the central bank policies may have been a malign influence on the latter two end quote this was to your earlier point i take i take this to say kevin that central banks often make the psychological overconfidence the natural phenomena that we just talked about worse is that what is that what you're saying in effect they they take it and they compound it to be far worse absolutely
0: right? absolutely um you know they've um so the whole phenomenon of buy the dip right is mm-hmm. um i think exactly what you're talking about um when volatility spikes carry trade loots, loses money the S&P 500 does poorly um what central bank action has shown is that you know there there's going to be support there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the natural thing to do is, when you see that, is to go in and buy the dip. And dip buying has been richly rewarded in the last couple of decades um, to the extent that, you know, if you're, say, someone your age, um, that's really all you've known in your career is Correct. dip buying work. So why wouldn't you do it? Um, so yeah, I, I absolutely agree that, um, central bank action has, has has kind of reinforced that.
1: And we're going to come back to that because I think, I think you got some great data in the book. So let me, um, talking about the sawtooth pattern, by the way, you stole the words out of my mouth, Kevin, earlier in our, 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 uh, conversation, um, I, I had in my notes, I was going to say, you know, you call it a sawtooth and not our firm. We call it going up on the escalator and going down on an elevator. So if that's the, the pattern that sawtooth and, and carry trades, you know, that's how they look. Um, you mentioned Brownian noise and why don't we see stock returns that follow a pattern that's more like that where there's, it's more independent.
0: Well, precisely for the reason that we've talked about, right. Um, the I think the prevailing idea when I when I was at business school many moons ago was that you know markets were efficient and observing today's price told you nothing about the future mm-hmm. um, and so that would that would imply that you you know stocks would have a kind of a normal somewhat normal distribution um, but in a world of carry trades in a world where you know we're short volatility. And the most important measure of volatility in the world is the S&P 500. You're going to get these big drawdowns. So you're going to get skewness. And that that actually shows up uh, quite clearly in in the distribution of S&P 500 returns. If you plot kind of the daily returns to the S&P against a bell curve, what you see is that there's a lot more daily returns just to the right side of zero than their quote unquote should be Mm -hmm. um so those are the small steady gains and then there's a ton more on the far left um uh representing the you know the outsized um outsized drawdowns so we we don't see um you know we don't see the quote unquote brownie motion the independent returns um because, you know, because the S&P 500 essentially become the, the global center of the, of the carry trade.
1: Now, when you, when you say that, um, you know, it's like in the ultimate carry trade, you're talking about the depth, the amount of capital it could suck in. As you pointed out, I mean, European markets don't have nearly the market cap. And I actually thought, as I was reading your book, I was thinking about companies coming to market. Right. Well, where do they go to the market all the time right now versus other markets? It's, it's the biggest carry trade, to your point. Um, so, so volatility yeah, Just spiking. to interrupt you on that,
0: sure. it, it, I did a presentation with Jamie uh, uh, about a year ago and he mm-hmm. puts together some graphs and he, he's, his point that, that he makes really well, much better than me, is that um, if you have a risk position anywhere in the world um you can hedge that with um the s p 500 futures or options markets in other words the derivative markets linked to the s p 500 are many order of magnitudes bigger than anywhere else in the world so if i and i know people you know i know people who've told me yeah you know i i got stuck holding a long position in south african equities mm-hmm. from a client trade i didn't want to have the risk so I offset it by, you know, shorting an S&P 500 future. So um, if you the graph that Jamie did was showing the trading volume in the, um, I think, the E-minis in the U.S., uh, in the S&P 500 E-minis. And, you know, I'm like, hey, I think, you've got, <laughs> I think the scale on your graph is wrong because it's saying it trades something like $60 trillion in value a year. Uh, and that can't be right. And he's like, no, it's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love it, and you know, will, and, and and then you know the neck There's nothing else that that compares. So the point is that you can the 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 U.S. equity market, particularly S and P 500, is providing liquidity services to the rest of the world. If you have a risk mm-hmm. position anywhere else in the world, you can hedge it. It won't be a perfect hedge, but you can hedge it in the S and P 500 uh, markets. And in return for providing that service, there should be a compensation, which is kind of the, the carry. Um, and so the, the, the S&P 500 markets have kind of evolved to you know, being a carry trade by providing liquidity to you know, the rest of the world.
1: When well, also, like you're pointing out, if you wanna hedge, it's the cheapest way to insure. It's the low cost producer of insurance too. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, so uh, and by the way, as I was thinking about this, I you know, we we, we own U.S. equities and also own non-U.S. equities, and it's funny, uh, we still look at the S&P as the general risk proxy of equities, regardless of what market in the world. In other words, we comp it and say, how did it do relative to the S&P? Because like you said, it's the number one benchmark uh, for any investor. So let's, so Volmageddon, you talk about Volmageddon and when volatility spiked, now, Volatility spiked, but the S&P didn't fall apart kind of in like a, you know, like VIX picking up should be kind of pointing to some kind of almost bear in a way. Why would, why do you think that we didn't go to a nasty bear market with volatility doing what it did then?
0: Yeah, that's that's a fascinating case study. Um, I think the, the initial trigger for Volmageddon was a a big down move in the S&P 500, I think like a couple of percent, and we hadn't seen a big down move. Uh, this was early 2018, so the market had been on quite a strong run, um, and then you had um, you had like a 2% down day, and that triggered the initial rise in the VIX. But then once you had that initial rise triggered, then what happened was there, was a, there were a number of kind of structured products linked to the VIX, Mm-hmm. that ended up kind of going into a um a kind of a death spiral a um a uh, a kind of an unfavorable uh trading spiral so you had you had dedicated short uh VIX funds sh- short VIX futures so basically literally hey we're going to earn the carry by selling VIX futures and um obviously when the VIX rose then those those funds started losing money, and they have to buy in VIX futures in order to reduce their exposure. And of course, as they buy VIX futures, as they close their short position, that pushes the the VIX up higher, and you get this kind of negative spiral. Interestingly, you also had, (laughs) this is kind of funny, you also had a lot of products that were levered long the VIX, because at that time, volatility was kind of the lowest that we had really ever seen. Mm -hmm. And so there's people who are like, hey, we want to bet on mean reversion. We want to bet on the VIX going from 10 back to 20. But the premiums climb so quick, right? Well, when you, the, the dynamics of running a levered long fund are such that if you're, and this is, Remember, this is an exchange-traded product, so you had kind of like the rule is you Mm -hmm. had to end the day with 200% levered exposure, right? Mm. So if during the day the VIX rises, what happens to your leverage? It actually falls, Mm. right? Um, So you have to buy to maintain your target leverage. So ironically, (laughs) you had dedicated short VIX funds having to buy to cover their shorts, and you had levered long VIX funds having mm-hmm. to buy to maintain their target leverage. Um, and those two things combined with the positioning of uh, dealers who had sold calls on the VIX and therefore they needed to buy VIX to hedge their exposure, all those three things came together to create this sort of you know, two or three day route in the volatility markets mm-hmm. that, as you said, was uh, was kind of disentangled a little bit from what was going on in the S and P five hundred. So normally that sort of huge jump. Normally what you think of is the S and P falls, and then the VIX, or so the S and P falls, and the VIX rises in response. Yeah. In this case, it was sort of the tail wagging, <laughs> wagging the dog, the dog yeah. a little bit. Um, yeah.
1: So um, so um, there was a theory. That in back in you point out this th- the theory back in thirteen and fourteen was that um, the the S and P five hundred was rising because of Fed liquidity, right? In other words, like oh, the only reason we came out of oh eight oh nine was because of Fed liquidity and stock market was going up because of kind of this false liquidity. Um, I'll, I'll quote out of your book here: "Quote if the markets were really inflated by the Fed's extreme money creation, then prices of commodities, goods, and services and wages would have." Risen eventually, end quote. Obviously, they didn't. Is price the best way to judge this? In other words, is that the only way we really have to kind of judge whether the policies of the central banks are wrong? I mean, <laughs> I suppose ultimately, I,
0: I I agree with you that um, you know that it in a in a in a in a free market, it should be the tool that has the most information content absolutely Mm
1: -hmm. yeah yeah so so then you talk about um in that i think it was in that chapter you then talk about you you disagreed with that theory because it implied that the fed has the ability like god to create real wealth and i find that very interesting as a just a sub topic because ray dalio is running around the world right now saying oh we've broken capitalism and it's because the rich have got too rich and the poor aren't rich enough. And he's claiming that in effect, if you read between the lines, he's saying that we have created real wealth. Now, I am more of the ilk of you where I say, well, the Federal Reserve has done something. It's called a cause effects. The question is, what those people have attained, is it real wealth or is it a sawtooth pattern? Yeah, uh, so,
0: if you believe, you know, in some sense, if you believe the prices of the S and P 500, the Fed's action has, you know, created wealth in the sense that it's driven the value of the S and P 500 mm-hmm. higher relative to, say, GDP, than it than it would be um, through not through um, anything aside from just money creation, mm-hmm. and that seems like um, a magic trick, and so we would you know, argue that eventually um, you're going to see that reverse and that that wealth is, you know, is not it's not real. It's um, it's a, it's a function of, you know, essentially the Fed. Reducing volatility, which increases the value of of carry trades in the S&P 500 uh, being kind of central to the carry regime, therefore, you know, goes up goes up in value. Um,
1: and benefiting and also, the people that can take upon them carry risks.
0: Right. That, so the people who are in a position to do carry trades tend to be wealthy and well-connected. They start off with more capital than the average person. Mm-hmm. And if carry trades lose money um, when volatility goes up and the Fed acts in those situations to stem the rise in volatility, in other words, to truncate the losses for carry traders, then you're basically subsidizing people who are, are wealthy and you're reinforcing that existing, um, that existing difference and it grows greater over time. So it's a fundamentally undemocratic process and not one, again, that I think the Fed has intentionally tried to do. Agreed. But it's, be, it's a second order effect It's become clearer and clearer over time. Um, and one that I think they've kind of denied more than they more than they should have, but yeah, it does increase wealth inequality in our view.
1: The the Fed put theory, you know, has touches in parts of your book as you talk about the S and P five hundred. Um, interestingly, I didn't see Jim Grant in your opening acknowledgments at all. Um, who, for listeners that don't know who Jim Grant is, uh, he's of the uh, in, he's written the Interested Observer, uh, and that's where much of his fame. But he has a more recent book out there, Badgett, um, uh, that you can read. Um, so I didn't see Grant in your acknowledgements. I saw Chancellor John Authors and Jeremy Grantham, though. Um, d- I, you know, if you look at the history of the the Fed Put Theory, I, I, most people would kind of say it was actually '87 Greenspan lowered interest rates after the crash of '87 um, to provide liquidity. In effect, um, d- doesn't isn't isn't the only way the Fed Put Theory even possible? Is just in a bond bull market, which is the only place we've actually witnessed it in a meaningful way.
0: Yeah, uh, uh, that's, um, first of all, yes, I agree with you um, about 1987. um, And then following on 1998 and 2008, obviously. Um, Mm -hmm. But you, you make a very important point that, you know, the Fed put works in a deflationary world. Right, mm-hmm. which is why it's worse. It's so kind of dangerous right now that mm-hmm. you know, when the Fed intervenes to provide liquidity in a deflationary world, um, that, uh, that, supports, that supports the market. Now, in an uh, in inflationary world, um, the risk is that you know, if we had, let's say, things get much worse in Ukraine, the market starts to go down. And the Fed feels it needs to intervene. Well, now you've, you're intervening. You're flooding a market with liquidity when inflation is seven, eight percent. You've got supply, mm-hmm. you know, chain issues all around the world. Then all of a sudden, people are like, "Hey, this isn't going to work." And um, if volatility doesn't fall after the intervention, then you can then you know i guess really in some sense that's the theme of the book that central banks seem like they have a lot of power um right up until the moment where it's exposed that they might actually not have that much power sure and um you know that that i think now is much closer to the situation
1: we're at than, than
0: even when we wrote the book
1: okay so so let's jump um moneyness is a is a wonderful idea that you bring up in the book so kind of briefly, uh, can you describe money- moneyness briefly? And then I'm going to come back with kind of an example and would love to have you react to my example.
0: Yeah, it's important always to, to remind me to be brief.
1: Uh, <laughs> can well, myself included. On. So you're, you're in good company. <laughs> no, that's a fair. Answer. Look,
0: uh, the idea is that in a carry regime or a carry is liquidity providing. So the world as carry trades grow, the world is much more liquid. In other words, it's much easier to transact in the financial markets at low cost, um, number one. Number two is interest rates um, are falling because debt is rising. So we it's unattractive to hold cash because it doesn't pay much in the way of interest. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, because markets are so liquid, a range of other assets start to be seen as almost as good as cash, as like mm-hmm. substitutes for cash. So think about fixed income ETFs. You can go buy a short term bond ETF that pays a couple of percent interest, and that looks like almost like cash, right? Because if you want to, sure. you need your money, you can sell. Um, so the, the idea of moneyness is assets becoming to be seen as good as cash. Um, because we're willing to, you know, we're willing to overlook the risk that's embedded in them because volatility is so low. And then of course, when you have 2008 or 2020, and we recognize that, hey, a short-term bond ETF is not the same thing as cash. I'm getting out and I'm gonna move into true cash. Then you get a kind of a run, exactly what we saw in the, you know, the ETF market in 2020, what we saw with money market funds in 2008. So moneyness evaporates during a carry crash, and the only thing that people
1: will really want to hold then is true cash. On page eight, 118 of your book, you had one of my favorite charts, and I was just—my jaw hit the floor when I saw this chart in there um, because we came across this probably six, seven years ago, and I use it in almost all my presentations, just so you know, Kevin. Um, you show data from the Fed, and I know technically it's the St. Louis Fed. You show equities— and mutual funds as a percentage of total U.S. household financial assets. You used it to explain how people are treating equities as though they are money-like, right? In other words, they're just willing to own a lot more of their net worth in stocks. I would add further to your case in your book, among wealthy people, they are creating credit from this this moneyness, if you will. Um, if you took $10 million to a brokerage firm today and said, Hey, I have this stock portfolio. Can I set up a loan account that's collateralized against that? They would give you 70% up to 70% of the value of that portfolio, um, that you could borrow at a very attractive interest rate, LIBOR plus something. Okay. And what you could then do is go out and write an offer on a $3 million home for all cash. Isn't this just a perfect example of the moneyness we're talking about here?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a kind of okay. a shocking, shocking one. Um, but yeah, I, I've got examples, too, where I have a lot of friends who manage um, portfolios for big institutions, endowments and foundations, etc. And, you know, they they basically consider their S&P 500 exposure to be their liquidity pool. Mm. Right. They don't hold cash. Um, yeah, they just um, they, they hold liquid equities.
1: The other reason why I love that chart, just so you're aware, Um, If you compare, and by the way, this would be, I mean, this completely fills in with your framework. It just, it blew my mind um, in thinking about this, but we actually, so we use that same chart, but then if you plot the 10-year forward returns of the S&P 500 on that data, what you'll find is the correlation coefficient is negative 0.85. So it's not a perfect relationship of, you know, people's willingness to own stocks relative to their financial assets it's just a really damn good one. Um, but it's negative, right? So it actually is a contrary indicator when people are treating stocks like money, you don't want to own stocks. And that is, I think that really follows the pattern that you guys are laying out, um, in, in this book and, and, and the moneyness is just staring people in the face.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's, I've seen that indicator as well. And, um, it's about as high a negative correlation as you get, certainly higher than even valuation indicators like, say, the Shiller's CAPE ratio and things like I agree,
1: that. agree. agree. In fact, if you, the data, just to make sure listeners understand, the data, I think, goes back to 1952 um, is where the St. Louis Fed goes back to. And I mean, in discussions, Kevin, in using your framework, it's perfect for this. I mean, this is the highest ownership we've ever had in U.S. history going back to 1952. And people think they're going to make money. So another conversation for another day, because I want to pivot. You say in the book, the overlevered world must be deflationary. And this is what we, you were just coming to a little while ago. And the under-levered world, inflationary. Isn't that regime change um, what we've just witnessed post-pandemic um, from carry to anti-carry? I'd
0: say we're in the transition
1: phase right okay. now. Um,
0: yeah, uh, we're... We're definitely clearly transitioning to a world of, of, of higher inflation, and I don't think it's transit, transitory. Um, I don't know that we're yet in a world that's under levered. Um, but you know, if you think about it, and I and um, you know, you guys are, um, I believe you're stock pickers, right? You, you, mm-hmm. um, you look for, you know, company, you know you're, you're not kind of shadow indexers as, um, as far yeah. as I understand. Um, so, you know, in a world that's inflationary, um, highly inflationary, you know, if you're a company, you might be thinking, shoot, I, I actually need more debt than I have mm. because, you know, that's going to that's gonna get inflated away. I can pay it back in five years at money that's worth less than uh, much less than it is now. Uh, I don't think we're yet at that phase, but I could see those decisions starting to, um, starting to be, you know, taken. Um, so yeah, I think we're we're definitely transitioning out of a out of the carry regime. Um, but that you know, we say in the book, it's not going to be like a linear, smooth transformation. Um, Agree. It will, yeah. It will be choppy. It'll take time. Um, probably take one more big. I think. Um, downturn in the market along the lines of what you and I just discussed, a downturn Mm -hmm. in the market where the standard playbook is all of a sudden destabilizing instead of stabilizing. So quantitative easing, flooding the market with liquidity in an inflationary world, that's not going to be stabilizing. It certainly shouldn't be stabilizing, right? Um, So if you had a big downturn, people lose faith in the Fed. And also, I wrote a, an article about this uh, about a year and a half ago. The, I think the expectation is, given that the Fed had bailed out the corporate bond market last time, that it should bail out equity holders, right? If I'm, if I'm an equity holder, and as you said, most people are now, or a lot of people are, and the market's down 20, 30, 40%, and the Fed's not doing anything, you're thinking, hold on, You know, you bought mortgage bonds in 2008, you bought corporate bonds in 2020, Um, how come everyone else is getting a bailout, not the equity holders? Uh, And then if the Fed doesn't, you know, step in and directly support the equity market, then you've got a risk. And if it tries to support it indirectly through more quantitative easing, you've also got a risk because that's inflationary and inflation's already high. So, Um, I think we probably need some kind of episode like that before we're, you know, fully transitioned out of the carry regime. Not to be like (laughs) overly pessimistic, um, to circle back, I actually think the way to protect yourself is, you know, a portfolio that's not just tracking the market, that's kind of smartly constructed in a way that maybe can take advantage of some of these things
1: well, Kevin, we know that we have one uh, element that we typically need when carry ends, which is the Russian ruble is in full-on decline. I mean, that's the funny part. I, when we were talking about 98, I thought, wait a second. Yeah, we, we, we're <laughs> right. definitely changing either a carry trade or a carry regime. We don't know yet, but the Russian ruble is doing what it should do. Um, I, I, you know, I, I really, and I, I, it's funny, it, your book, as I read through it, I literally had, before you got to the inflation discussion, the underlever discussion, in my mind, I was thinking, but wait, inflation changes all of this. It really changes the modeling and the thinking and the psychology. Um, you know, I, it, since people use the term climate deniers, I mean, the inflation deniers who included the Fed, I would argue, now are in a regime that they hadn't built models for. Um, isn't this just a perfect negative liquidity price? theory playing out in front of us?
0: Yeah, I think that, that that's right. That's what we we said. The Kerry regime would have to end um, with higher inflation. And um, in fact, I think actually, you know, Tim said that you, you might need some kind of supply shock to kind of really get it started, <laughs> which, which we've funny. had. That's <laughs> funny. Um,
1: yeah. So I, 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 I completely agree. The only part of your book that I think I wrestle with, because like I said, I I really like the framework, I really like a lot of the evidence you guys had, uh, was, and and by the way, I'm going to call this a Grantham-like idea, okay? Um, It is kind of like the idea that a carry trade ends and then the economy is ruined because of it, okay? And now, for carry trades like 07 to 09, that's a good example of where the capital markets and the carry trade ending directly affected the economy, no question about that. But... I don't think that's today's setup, um, as the problems that we're currently manifesting or seeing manifest in front of us are due to the economy. The unwillingness to borrow money relative to income among households, as an example, is different than it's been in the past. The demographics of places like the U.S. with consumers like millennials is different than we had in the prior 20 years, to your point, kind of about how long this regime's been going on. So my last question is, does the economy have to be punished you know, coming into this new regime, um, or is it maybe the winner in the anti-care regime? Um, and before I get your answer, to that the, the only the, I'm plagiarizing Buffett in his Sun Valley talk in '99, he used his. I don't, I don't know if you've ever heard his talk, but he, he talked about 17-year cycles. He said six to four, 64 to 81 was where the the economy got the capital, not the stock market. And he explained from 81 to 98, all the excess capital went into the stock market, kind of in a central bank kind of nod in some ways, not the economy. And he, you know, so he's pointing out that stocks are going to do terrible from 98 to 15. And what I find interesting is this anti-carry regime, it feels, smells, looks like 64 to 81 did, and where the economy grew, but that's really all that grew and money went into things like government spending and housing. Um w- would you say the economy has to do terrible in 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 every regime well i think we would say that
0: long term the ending of the carry regime should be good Mm -hmm. because it channels money into kind of unproductive investment um and so if we can get away from that and get back to channeling money to more productive productive investment then that should be good for economic growth sure but there would be a there's going to be a transition period that could be quite painful as you as you pointed out the you know the percentage of total assets in the stock market now is as high as it's ever been so if you get a stock market um you know significant correction and then doesn't bounce back then that 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 changes household balance sheets changes sure. the willingness to borrow and I think there's a lot of uh, leverage the economy's leverage to the housing market and then it's also leveraged to the stock market as well um, and there's interaction effects I and mean, I see people in my neighborhood you know who've companies have gone public and they buy a house for cash yeah. and you know and they're you know 25 years old and so that you know that sort of thing would stop um, so I think there's probably a transition period that's that isn't so great, but it it could you know hopefully we come out the other side to a, a more kind of sustainable pattern of growth, um, to more your point, equity financing versus debt financing.
1: Yeah, well, and and um, you know stealing from the St. Louis Fed data, we've looked at um, home equity as a percentage of total net worth, and to your point, obviously homes are going up in value. But actually, right now, we're at the average of the last, you know, 70 years in that statistic, um, which means we're just kind of at the middle ground. You know, it's not overcooked and it's not undercooked. And I find that interesting because like 64 to 81, by the end of the 80s, everyone thought a house was the ultimate inflation protection versus in the last 20 years. That wasn't true for what those wealthy people. It was actually the stock market, to your point in comparison. So... I guess, I mean, this is, I just think all the topics we covered, Kevin, and it's like my mind, I'm, I'm having too much fun. Um, so that probably means we, we probably need to do something else with our lives. Um, is there anything else that we we haven't talked about in our discussion about uh, about your book um, with, with Tim and Jamie that, that you think needs to be mentioned? Yeah.
0: Um. Well, I, that's a good question. We, we've, covered, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, and I, I do want to circle back because I feel like sometimes it, I come across as sort of too pessimistic and I, I, <laughs> I, I try to be an optimist and I'm an optimist by nature. Um, but I think that the, the way forward is to, you know, it's kind of like, what's the line from A Few Good Men? You want the truth, you can't handle the truth. You know, yeah. Let's handle the truth. Um, so this is just kind of like, I think, a more accurate description of the way the economy is behaving. It does mean there's um, there's risks out there that I don't think the central bank has fully appreciated. I do think that we need a kind of rethink of kind of how what, what the central bank's role is in the economy. Because if we're now in a world where, you know, the kind of asset-based economy and the central bank has to support the asset markets in a way that it didn't when it was imagined in 1907, then we ought to charge for that. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think there ought to be, if the Fed is the liquidity provider of last resort, I'd like to see it um, I'd like to see a charge for that, explicitly. But at what price?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's the, well, local, we're a provider of last resort, but at what price is what you're getting. Exactly,
0: yeah, and uh, hopefully that's something we can address in our second book, and people aren't going to like it because anything that they've previously gotten for free, when you have to start paying for it, um, <laughs> we don't like it. It's like we've got carbon, we've got to use carbon for free for our whole lives, and um, now people want to put a price on it, we're not happy about it. Um, but... Um, I, I, I think that that needs to happen, and I think to the extent the Fed the, the Fed's been trying to provide insurance, kind of like trickle down insurance, right? Mm. Let's prevent people from losing their jobs by um, by supporting the bond market, and that's like trickle down economics. There's no empirical support for it. So to the extent we want to insure things, let's insure them directly. That cost will be up front, and then let markets kind of be freer to set prices, as you and I both said, because we want prices to be informative of things. So I'd like to to hope that in the next 10 years we can rethink um, the type of insurance we wanna provide and how we're gonna charge the the people who are getting that and let financial markets be a little less um, governed by central bank movements.
1: Which also means that for people that haven't lost their mind with their capital, there could be increasing returns versus people that have lost their mind there could be decreasing returns, which I love the sound of that, uh, to be honest. Um, well, Kevin, this has been just a, a wonderful conversation. I, I really appreciate your time personally. Um, as I said earlier, The Rise of carry is a great book for building a framework for where we are. Um, like Kevin and I talked about as we speak, um, I believe it explains the transition we are seeing in interest rates, stocks versus commodities, capital versus labor. Um, if I were you, I'd go out and buy a copy of it Um, and, and thank, I just, again, thank Kevin so much for his time. And and thank you also to Tim and Jamie for this work. Um, for our listeners, if you have a great book that you'd like to recommend, email podcast at smeedcap.com. That's podcast at smeedcap.com. Thank you for joining us for A Book With Legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smeed Capital
0: Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor.